Welcome to our 80% minimum episode with our friends Pete and Hugh from the 80% Mental Podcast and Sarah Ardner, author of Dear Coach. As you listeners may know, Anna, Laurie and I run this project on our own and with little in the way of production support. This means that at times the production quality can take a bit of a hit. This is one of those occasions and you may notice in the recording some feedback on my microphone when I come in and out of the conversation, which is not very often. While we have tried to minimise the impact of your listening experience, we do apologise in advance and hope that you enjoy what was a four-hour conversation for us that has translated into an episode that we're extremely proud of. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the 8% minimum. Welcome back to episode two of our second series, which is a special episode in collaboration with our friends at 80% Mental, and probably the best sports psych podcast in the world. And no, you didn't pay me to say that. Uh, however, I'm legally obliged to do so through the disclaimer I signed uh, as, uh, as a guest on their podcast uh, uh, recently. Um, uh, jokes to one side, I, I am delighted to welcome you both onto the pod along with our new friend, Sarah Ardner. Uh, who has the unfortunate task of getting fired into a midday uh, 8% minimum beer uh, in Colorado. Um, we'll ask you guys to introduce yourselves uh, and your beer shortly, but I think it's important to throw a little bit of a disclaimer out there. Um, because while this episode is, of course, socially lighthearted in nature, we are discussing an area of sport coaching that doesn't always get the platform it requires. And in fact, the, su- the subject area is often ignored within the discourse. Uh, that being, of course, the area of coach well-being. Um, It's an area I have a research interest in through my postgraduate studies, and it's an area where, Pete, you in particular have been a huge source of stimulation and inspiration for me in terms of how I think about asking some big questions in my work both as a student and in my role as a policymaker and coach developer. Um, So while we may be discussing what can be a fairly sobering topic uh, over a libation or two, uh, we are doing so uh, with responsibility uh, and not to... um, trivialise frivolous alcohol consumption, we will uh, try and uh, stay true to our beliefs as to the importance of coach well-being uh, as an area that needs attention paid to within sport. Um, we also recognise the subject matter and some of the stories uh, we may tell could surface memories, thoughts and feelings for some of our listeners which they may find difficult to confront, make sense of or indeed cope with. If this is you, please don't feel alone and know the help is out there. Uh, if help is not to hand and you don't know where to turn, then the Samaritans is a good place to start by calling 116-123. And so, uh, into the episode. Uh, let's start with you, Sarah. Uh, talk to us about who you are, where you are, your new book, and of course, your midday beers. Yeah, of course. It's nice to meet everyone and be here. I'm Dr. Sarah Erdner. I'm a certified mental performance consultant through our uh, Association for Applied Sports Psychology. I am in Alamosa, Colorado in the United States, very rural. We're seven miles wide, 9,000 people here, uh, which I love and hate. Um, So I am an assistant professor of coaching at our university here, Adams State University, and also our graduate program coordinator for our online master's of coaching program. And I am the author of my book, Dear Coach, What I Wish I Could Have Told You, Letters from Your Athletes, which was inspired by my dissertation research where I had athletes, uh, interviewed athletes about their experience with the coach-athlete relationship, how it influenced 
their stress response, their ability to bounce back. And the stories I got in those interviews, um, my dissertation committee said, you need to write a book. You don't need to just put this in a research journal somewhere. So here we are. I have Dear Coach um, that is coming out. I believe in the UK it'll be a July 28th uh, release date uh, for the physical copy. The ebook is already available. Um, so I've been getting a lot of really good headway on just championing the athlete voice when it comes to coach well-being in that these athletes are saying, hey, we need to advocate for coaches as well. Um, and the beer that I'm drinking, again, it's noon here. It's a Thursday. It's noon. It's the middle of a work day. So you all have roped me into this. Um, if any of my bosses are listening to this at any point, please know that I was strategic and all meetings have been canceled this afternoon um, and they were moved to another time. But I am drinking an 8.1%. I have to give a shout out to Square Peg Brewworks. Um, they are uh, a local brewery here that has a lot of award winning beer. I'm drinking the Duke that is an Imperial Vienna lager. Um, and so we will see... Uh, where this goes. But again, it's a, it's a great drink to kind of go along with this conversation that we're about to have. Cheers, Sarah. Thanks very much. And uh, for the record, it didn't take much convincing to get you fired into those uh, midday beers, I think. Uh, Not at all. <laughs> there, was, yeah. there, there, was a, there was a bit of a rubber arm there that was quite easy to twist. Yeah, that's true. There was, there was no twisting of my arm to do this. It was more twisting of my own schedule to make sure that I was in a comfortable position. Awesome. Cool. Right, Hugh, Pete, through the medium of teams, do you want to paper, rock, scissors for uh, for who goes next? I mean, that's so, not great for a non-visual medium, is it? But, you know. I just want to recount there. There was a tense moment whenever we looked each other at Nye and uh, we stared down. And, uh, well, Pete lost. But it's not the first time he's lost. Anyway, Pete, um, I'll introduce myself <laughs> as soon as I'm talking. I'm Hugh. Um, I'm the person that Pete bullies on the 80% Mental podcast. Um, and also, I'm a sports psych. I work with uh, a number of Olympic programs and Paralympic programs within the UK. Um, and outside of that, um, yeah, I'm a, a washed up hurling coach and uh, weightlifting coach as well. So uh, I've given up on that and uh, just now do, do sports psych. So, uh, Pete, over to you. Please don't bully me. Are oh, you not going to tell us what beers you've got? Is that is that not what we do now? Oh, yeah. So, uh, tonight uh, I'm drinking a... Uh, actually, this is important because I got this from a pub called The Needle and Pin in Loughborough. Um, and it's my local. It's a micro pub. And basically, Sean's one of the... They won pub of the year in, in the local area. And Sean's been delivering beer to me when I need it. Um, so the beer I'm drinking is a Pantera Triple IPA. Um, it's quite tasty. It tastes like three badgers who have started the gang and are planning to invade a forest full of squirrels um, to rescue their friend badger who's been held captive. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really good at all this tasty stuff. But anyway, that's me, Pete. Over to you. So uh, I am Dr. Pete Olushaga. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at Sheffield Hallam University. Uh, a chartered psychologist with the BPS uh, and the host, along with you, of 80% Mental, which I think we can legally say is the best sports psychology podcast because someone said it once. Um, so I think that's that's all right to say that. Um, as Derek mentioned earlier on, my uh, research, my PhD, my postdoc research is in the area of stress. 
and burnout and well-being in high-performance sports coaching. Um, so, yeah, really excited to chat with everybody today. And thanks to Derek for inviting us on to the, uh, the Coaching Discourse podcast. Um, my beer, my first beer, is uh, from Wonder Beyond Brewing. Uh, and it's a La Adelita Mexican Cake Imperial Stout. And the 8% minimum I took literally, because this is an 11% beer, um, I've just poured it and taken a sip of it. And although I am a, a, a an atheist, I believe this is what heaven tastes like. And it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm just going to drink a little bit more of it right now. Anna, what, what beers have you got for us today? What are you, what are you rocking? Well... I haven't had my dinner yet, which I know is important information for you, Derek, to keep in mind. Um, so I've just got one, but it's uh, called It's Springtime in Japan. It's a Cloudwater uh, brewery beer. Um, 8%, as as um, discussed, have we have we kind of discussed why we went, we've gone for that? No. So I'm going to take, take the credit for this idea in that we normally do our uh, two beer minimum kind of debrief. Um, after our podcast episodes and obviously a bit of a play on the 80% mental we've came up with the 8% minimum uh, for our our beers in a kind of combined episode Um, and yeah I I went for this one just because I love Japan and it's spring and uh, we're we're in May, May is my favourite month, nothing to do with the fact that it's my birthday uh, on Saturday, Uh, it's more to do with there's two bank holidays, it's kind of like an anticipatory month, stuff's opening up and the sun comes out a little bit. So yeah, I love spring. I love Japan. So I've gone for this one. And it says, fresh blooms bring hope as nature explodes in vibrant bursts of colour. The passage of time provides opportunity for change and renewal. So, you know, all good. And I've only had two sips and it sounds like I've had more. <laughs> Maybe because it's 8%. <laughs> you kept the birthday fairly quiet, Scottish. Is it a big one? Uh, not that big, but I'm hoping that it will help me get into the next bracket for vaccination. <laughs> ah, yeah, I, I went for two beers just in case, you know, um, just always be prepared. That's that's Scouts Honor, right? Um, so the first beer that I've gone for is 8% Bang On, which is from Overtone uh, Brewery, which is a Churpuz. Uh, I got this because of, you know, I played rugby in New Zealand for a season. Uh, and it's heavily influenced by by uh, New Zealand as uh, a brew. And then I got the Overton Big Yin, because uh, that's what I was called for my first couple of years when I moved to Scotland. Uh, and that's a 10% uh, triple uh, New England IPA. So, uh, yeah, I think I need to cancel all my meetings in the morning for work, because uh, it could be it could be a big one. Uh, Laurie, over to you. Likewise, I've come prepared with two beers. So my first one is from Dot Brew, and it's called Pursuit of Juicy Deepa. And it's my first Irish beer on the podcast from Wicklow. And my second one is a Sterling Brewery, Fallen Brewing, and it is a super elevation, hazy, yeah. Oh, what is, what is, what is D-I-P-A? What's that? Why is it Deepa? All oh, right, double IPA. Okay, um, both eight percent. To kick us off with the first question: uh, How can coaches take care of their well-being proactively, not just reactively? And uh, let's come to Hugh first. So, I think uh, there's 
there's an interesting thing about you know being proactive there's all the general kind of things that people do in terms of health nutrition sleep basics of actually living um getting your basics right but i think what i would say is i'm going to try and do an al pacino impression um because there's a movie called uh i think it's called heat and al pacino has this great line in it i think it's really relevant to uh understanding um attachment and detachment from what you do so let, let me just try this impression like <clears throat> bear with me because i'm not great at impressions okay i told me one time don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner so that was my best impression of al pacino <laughs> which wasn't too bad <laughs> but, uncanny <laughs> but the the point is that you know are you willing to walk away from it and I think if you're involved in something as a coach, from a practical point of view, if you're not willing to walk away, you're not actively practicing self-care. And I think we look at athletes and, and how they transition out of sport and actually leave sport and, and go from being a full-time athlete into something else. So this transition period, they actively prepare to transition out of the sport. I think as coaches, people need to actively prepare to leave that sport, leave that club, leave that team so that they can actually move on to another place to coach or also transition out if they're an employed coach, maybe into a side career or a different venture for a while. So I think active preparation is actively preparing for it to end is as important as how much you're putting into it. Um, and that's going to help with things like, you know, not developing a unidimensional identity around your uh, behavior as a coach. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Laurie? I think that was a pretty spectacular uh, impression you gave there, Hugh. And yeah, thank you for kicking us off. Um, should we come to Sarah next? We'll do a kind of round robin and then hopefully we can just get an open discussion. Yeah, of course. Uh, I had two thoughts that came to mind. Um, one from more of a macro level, one from a uh, uh, yeah, macro level, micro level. So macro level, I, I need to just make a point here, especially to the audience that's listening and that, you know, I think we immediately go to how can coaches be proactive, but we need to address the system. And again, I'm coming from the United States from um, how our coaching education is set up here. So I would love this discussion between, I think there probably is some similarities in the UK versus here, but that we and what I gathered from my research with athletes is that it's a tr the energy is a trickle down effect. So as a mental performance consultant, when I'm working with athletes, almost anywhere between 70 to 80%, maybe even upwards of 90% of athletes, mental health issues or even mental performance issues are being exacerbated by the coach. So the coach is coming in anxious, they're coming in a certain way, and it's making the athlete anxious. And so what I'm realizing here, though, in the United States is that we have a lot of mental health initiatives for athletes. We put a lot of our money into athletes because they're the money makers, quote unquote. And we're forgetting about the coach. And I think what we've done, especially and, and in the literature, it talks about first we had coach centered you know, coaching. And now the whole big thing is athlete centered. And I think that's even missing the mark in that it needs to be a relationship centered because coaches are just as important and needing to be brought into the limelight of the situation. So how are we creating? And one of the things I talk about in my book, Dear Coach, is empathizing with the coach and saying, hey, there's ways you can get proactive. And I'll get to that micro approach that I'll give kind of a nugget to the audience here too. 
but also speaking to maybe some sport administrators that are listening to this and saying, what about coach mental health initiatives? How are we advocating for coaches to make sure that they're in a healthy place so that athletes, you know, we have mirror neurons in our brains from a neuroscience perspective where we're mimicking the behavior of those we're around. How are we making sure at a systemic level that we're incorporating these initiatives that are advocating for coaches and saying, hey, we see you too. And it's less of a, how can you as a coach get us the end result of the athlete, which is just using a coach as a tool. Um, at a micro level, one of the things that I provide this exercise in my book and go a little bit more into detail on this is having coaches sit down. We talk about reflective practice a lot and how that's a really good tool to use, but being more intentional in that reflective practice. And one of the things that I, the athletes actually helped me build is everybody has a dear coach letter within them. Even us on this call, the audience, we were athletes once we have a, we have a dear coach letter we could write to either to a former coach that was either a thank you letter or a more critical letter and sitting down and not only writing that letter, but then step two is rereading that letter back to you as if it was written to you about you by somebody underneath your current care. And that's a really vulnerable step to take. And I'll tell you that I have personally done this several times and I have had to start going to counseling because of it, it feels like, because I'm starting to realize I'm mimicking a lot of the behaviors of certain authority f figures in my life, parents, coaches, that I wish I wasn't, but I am because we just are mirror We have a tendency of mimicking. So sitting down, writing your own dear coach letter, what do you wish you could have said but never did? Um, maybe there's multiple dear coach letters that you have. And then taking that next step of rereading that letter back to you as if an athlete under your current care wrote that to you about you and circling various behaviors or feelings that your coach provoked in you previously that you might be mimicking currently. And then step three would be going through and, and making a list of what should I stop doing potentially behaviors that you thought was harmful. What should I start doing maybe in place of what you should stop doing? And maybe what should you keep doing? Maybe there's things you're doing that are great and that you're like, hey, I should keep doing this. Or maybe you wrote a thank you letter and it's things you need to start doing that were really great. Your former coach did as well. So those are that mi macro level systemic stuff we need to talk about, but also this micro level of uh, a way that coaches can get their boots on the ground and start doing some stuff within their own environments. Sarah, thank you. Well, a fantastic answer. Um, Pete, is there anything you want to add before we, I think there's opportunity for loads of questions in this from everyone, but anything you want to add before we maybe open up the floor? Um, yeah, definitely. You know, the, the questions about coaches being proactive and taking care of their well-being, for me, I think um, one of the fundamental questions is how are we defining well-being? Um, and I, I don't know if there's a real definitive answer. I know there's a lot of kind of questions about that in the literature. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we maybe need to come up with an answer to that question during the podcast, um, but I think it's a question that coaches might need to ask themselves. Um, you know, what does well-being actually look like for me? Is it the absence of ill health? Uh, is it a feeling of kind of just about hanging on, um, you know, and just avoiding some sort of mental health breakdown? Is that what well-being looks like in high-performance environments? Is it about not feeling terrible and exhausted and burnt out or is it about you know actually feeling good and enjoying work and um you know having uh positive relationships in in, in the job um because i think before you can really work on on well-being we need to know what we're aiming for uh, and it's going to be different for different coaches you know Hugh mentioned this idea that coaching is perhaps not sustainable and we should prepare for leaving a job and leaving the uh, profession 
Um, so understanding what well-being actually is, what we're aiming for, is an important first first step, I suppose. Um, I think, I guess, um, you know, I, well, I, I don't really know how long you want me to talk for about this stuff, but and we'll probably come on to some some other stuff a little bit later on. Um, but I think establishing coaches' values. So, what kind of coach do you want to be? Is in terms of kind of being proactive in, in managing well-being. You know, what sort of coach do you want to be? Um, and then developing the self-awareness skills to be able to start noticing things. So for starters, noticing when you are drifting away from the type of coach that you want to be, noticing when your stress responses are maybe different to what they might normally be. Uh, starting to notice when your well-being is perhaps being affected you know, before it gets to the point where it's unmanageable, before you're having the sort of, you know, breakdowns. Um, so self-awareness first. Uh, and, and like I say, we'll probably come on to this a bit later in the podcast, but practicing self-care through things like self-compassion uh, and um, embracing vulnerability. And as Sarah mentioned, that kind of idea of being vulnerable, um, you know, as ongoing self-care strategies uh, is is kind of what, what I would say. Thanks, Pete. If, uh, I'm going to kick us off with a question and I'll, I'll come to you Pete first if that's all right and then Derek mm-hmm. and I no doubt you want to jump in and, and everyone else. I, I recognise that there will be huge variation you know individual differences in the way that people react to situations and also their general working environments um, uh, but you spoke of high performance environments, if we think about the situational factors that may or may lead to or may not lead to psychological well-being, um, can you just speak a little bit about high performance environments and why that may or may not be, um, have more of an impact upon well-being in coaches? Sure, yeah, you know, there's a few things that I guess characterize or typically characterize high performance environments for coaches. Um, there's the perennial uh, threat of job insecurity. So the perennial threat of losing your job or losing funding. Um, so obviously there's pressure to perform and your performance is based on what somebody else is doing. Um, it's not even based on what you're doing. It's based on you know the athlete's performance. So there's that immense pressure around all of that stuff. Uh, again, in high performance coaching, there's kind of constant scrutiny from the media. There's the uh, pressure to be, um, you know, on it 24 uh, seven. Pressure for coaches to be kind of all things to all people and take responsibility for for everything as well. So there's just huge amounts of pressure from all uh, all angles. Again, depending on the sport and depending on the context, uh, coaches can spend huge amounts of time away from their families and their homes. So work-life balance, work-life interferences, again, a, a, a symptom of the stress and the pressure, but it's also a cause of that stress and pressure. And that's something that in the literature suggests, you know, leads to coaches feeling quite isolated in the role, again, which is just another pressure. So there's all of these stresses and all of these pressures that kind of typify this high performance environment. Um, and I, I think the, the, the key thing to mention is that, like, that's how it is. Like, stress is part of high performance sport. It just is. And we can't get away from that. So as much as we'd like to have a lovely, stress-free, wonderful working environment, like that's just not realistic. So it's about understanding when, 
either when those stresses start to pile up to a level that's perhaps abnormal or when you start to notice that your ability to cope with that stuff is perhaps less than normal like maybe you're tired maybe you're fatigued uh, maybe all of those resources that you have for coping with that stuff are perhaps you know uh, a little bit less than they normally would be so yeah all of the, all of that stuff in that environment um is is perhaps a cause of stress but as, exactly as you say people respond to it very differently uh, and people respond to it differently at different times as well um so yeah very very individual so and without hogging air time i'm <laughs> gonna i've got another question just to roll into open up the floor i think i think what you were maybe alluding to there is that stress can be a really broad term and of course it can be hugely pivotal and, and helpful in your personal development like you know real um growth can come from difficult times and I have no doubt that high performance sport can contribute to that and not you know really beneficially for athletes coaches and everybody involved mm-hmm. do you think there's an element of you know and I don't want to make any generalizations or, or assumptions because my experience is my experience but coaching from my experience can be quite an almost an isolating uh, role in that you're often doing it on your own traveling with a team so if you were working in for example a a restaurant or a cafe and you're working with a team and those situational factors that might contribute to stress or you've got people that are around you that you're working with that you might have a conversation and say this isn't you know this isn't ideal and, and I'm really struggling um, and then within that team, you might collectively recognise that and communicate that. Is there a role for coaches or some coaches spending a lot of time on their own in their environments and therefore those situational factors that might lead to stress aren't acknowledged within a wider community? Um, I, I think so, yeah. And there's two reasons for that. The first one is, like you say, just the actual, um, you know, like literal isolation uh, of coaches like I said before you know they're on the road a lot away from family away from friends um, you know so there's that literal isolation but then there's the idea that you know we talked before about job insecurity and one of the one of the things that came out in my early research was that conflict between coaches is actually quite a sort of major source of stress for them so if you're working in an organization and there's you know a whole bunch of other coaches who are next in line for your job like, do you want to go and talk to them about how stressed out you are and how you're not managing and how you're not coping? Like, probably not. So as well as that kind of literal isolation is that figurative isolation where you feel like there's all of this stress, there's all of this pressure. Yeah, I'm in an environment where actually it's really difficult for me to be, be vulnerable and to share uh, some of that some of that stuff. Um, so absolutely, yeah, isolation, I think, is, is, is a real uh, a real key here. There was two things that I just was going to come in on, Pete, and that's um, a recognition of the huge personal cost that comes with high-performance coaching as well. So not only is it isolating uh, as and when um, you're in the act of or you are participating in coaching, but there's a there's a, a wider consequence to being away from home for so long and for being in that very isolating environment. Uh, and, the, of course, there's this perpetuation of, I'm not going to say tragedy, but 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 um, negative events that happen in your life as a, an unintended consequence of being a, a coach, which is um, these the time and space away from family creates distance from from you and your family. And how many coaches do we know that operate in high performance sport that are at times on their second or third marriage, or uh, or you know are in in this constant cycle of failed relationships because they just you know 
because of because of the nature of, of their job and is that something that also needs uh, acknowledging within the context of this podcast yeah sure i mean one, one of the coaches that i um <clears throat> that i spoke to again in some of my earlier research was you know you were saying the divorce rate in this particular sport that you coached in is massive and i kind of thought he was joking but he's not you know that they're, they're away half the weekends of the year and they're, they're out at five o'clock in the morning and not at home till nine o'clock at night sometimes and you know that that real balance between work and family is something that, that can often suffer um just a, a sort of shout out to uh, marta benson who's done a whole bunch of research on uh, work-life balance and work-home interference with coaches. So if anybody's kind of interested in that aspect of it, that's a really good place to start looking at some of some of her work uh, in that area. Just actually bring us back to you around this uh, element of a unidimensional identity, talking of entrapment and this existential sort of uh, undercurrent that sits there around job security. And how many, in fact, we're seeing a lot more now, how many athletes transition from being an athlete into being a coach without necessarily creating multiple identities. So that if the world comes crashing in on them and it doesn't work out within coaching, and of course coaching as well as high performance sport is cruel. Um, so what can we be, what can we do proactively to try and support coaches to create these multiple identities so that their entire life isn't contingent upon uh, their success uh, as a coach within high performance sport like unidimensional that's kind of like a unicorn and some people like me a bit slow in the words uni means one so one dimensional to the your identity and that you've only got the one thing which is coaching i think whenever i come into contact with athletes and coaches i always sell them this idea of having uh you know more than just their sport and you've highlighted a point about athletes transitioning into coaching which is kind of like um, they've never known anything different other than that sport. They've never had other life experiences and can be quite narrow uh, in their focus. So something that I'd invite all the listeners to do is if you're on the Instagrams, you can go on there and take a look at your last 20 pictures and then just categorize them and say, right, there's a picture about my sport. There's a picture about my kids. There's a picture about my dog. There's a picture about um, some beer. Now, if it, it turns out that your Instagram and your last 20 pictures all fall under one category, I'd say that you're putting out to the world a pretty unidimensional identity. Now, I know Instagram's not real life, but I find it a really good thing for people to do is just to kind of get what all's in your life? What are you taking pictures of? I know we, we put forward this image in Instagram, but it's a good way of selling that idea that, you know, what are you focusing on and what you've taken a picture on is most likely something you're portraying as part of your identity. So the other aspect within that is if you've got one element and that goes wrong, you're in a position where you're under high stress because the one thing you've attached your entire identity to is falling to pieces. And there's, there's a guy called Robert Saplowski or Robert Sapolsky. I never say his name right so i don't care apologies robert you're an absolute legend but um the work that he's done in stress and baboons is really interesting and we've actually used that as part of our culture within paralympic powerlifting because if i wanted to kill you from stress i would remove all your outlets for frustration i would remove all the predictive information that things are going to get better i would remove all your autonomy and i remove any sense that things are getting better and I remove all your social and peer support. So that's what we build up this kind of idea of like, how do we deal with this? First of all, 
given the bandwidth to handle the stress um, before we actually go into the point of like, let's build something else into your identity. Because you can't just randomly turn around and say, oh yeah, I'm a coach, but actually now I'm also a skateboarder. That takes time to work up to that, you know? Um, so there's an interesting thing about this uh, this work from Saplowski is like, you know, outlets for frustration, or venting frustration, that's been removed because of the pandemic. Um, predictive information, that's been removed because of the pandemic. Autonomy, sense of control, that's been removed because of the pandemic. Continual improvement, that could have been removed. Social and peer support, that could have been removed. So as a result of the pandemic, people have been highly stressed. But this also occurs within coaching a lot of times because of the unknowns within the coaching environment and high performance environment. So that would be some of my thoughts. But, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Sarah? Um, I am 100% on board with everything you're saying. I want to expand this concept of identity as well, because we're talking about, you know, I, I went and opened up my Instagram when you said that, and I was like, let me go and check this out. Am I unidimensional myself? Um, and But I, I when I teach methods of coaching courses, then when I walk into class the first day, I'm like, hey, everyone, my name is Dr. Sarah Erdner, and I pass out a worksheet, and that worksheet is a demographic questionnaire. And the students are like, what does this have to do with anything we're about, like with methods of coaching? And I'm like, follow me here. Go through and fill out this demographic questionnaire. Check the boxes of what you identify with. And these are boxes that like maybe here, I'm not sure if our boxes are maybe similar to what is offered to you all over in the UK, but these are boxes that we're kind of forced into. So male, female, sexual orientation, um, your socioeconomic status. So check those boxes of where you, what you identify with. And so that's step one is... What do you identify with? Step two is now I want you to go through and highlight which uh, of these demographics you resonate with the most right now. You know, so an example of this would be right now I might uh, highly resonate with being a female that I would mark female on my demographic questionnaire. Now I want you to go in and tell me what are the narratives that society has told you on what it means to be a quote unquote good female or good whatever you've checked, whatever box you've checked. So for me, and and this gets into intersectionality, so I teach the students, like, I grew up in the South in the United States in a Southern Baptist religion uh, that taught me that to be a good female meant to be meek and mild and to not be on a podcast sharing my opinions about things, uh, to, to write a book you know, to leave that to my husband, which is a very heterosexual, uh, kind of that normative. So understanding those narratives I grew up with about identity around what it means to be a good female and vice versa, what then I was taught about what it means to be a quote unquote good man or a good male, which was that the male was supposed to be the leader, responsible, steadfast, resilient, all these things. And how are those narratives from when I was really young now seeping into the present moment and influencing my implicit bias toward people I'm in a relationship with. And what I mean by this is if I'm sitting in a room and I have this implicit bias, even though uh, if I don't address it, we'll say, if I don't address that I've been told this narrative of women are supposed to be the weaker vessel within the society uh, in being more quiet, not speaking up, not sharing opinions, um, I might, and I actually noticed this about myself, if a woman walked in the room and they were being opinionated and sharing their opinion and being a leader and being resilient, my implicit bias told myself that they were being a perversion of what I thought a quote unquote good woman was supposed to be. And I noticed that I started actually separating myself from them. I was like, I'm not going to go and relate to them. 
And so I actually, when I work with coaches and you talked about this earlier, Pete, is that, you know, a lot of coaching education books start chapter one, coaching philosophy. Let's talk about values driven coaching. My thing that I'm actually trying to bring into the world is let's push that. Let's, I love this coaching philosophy. Let's push that to chapter two. Let's make chapter one be coach positionality because we need to go intrapersonally first. We need to first talk about our identity as far as what we're doing in the world, but also talk about our demographics and how we identify um, and how those narratives we've been told are influencing the relationships we're in now. So to bring this into to the audience here, if you're a coach, thinking about those narratives you've been told on what it means to be a good fill in the blank, what it means to be a good white person, black person, you know, uh, heterosexual, if you're in the gay community, LGBTQIA, like all those different communities and being honest with yourself. I mean, I had to be very honest with myself and that where, you know, I was raised in a, in a country that is built off of racist roots and then realizing how is that seeping into modern day and influencing the relationship I have with black people. And again, for the audience, I'm a white cisgender female, um, that's pretty privileged on all accounts other than the fact that I'm, I mark the female box. And so having that conversation with myself on, if I did a, on a continuum of zero to 10 with 10 being a really great relationship, zero being not so great. If I was being honest with myself and I had to rate my relationship with a particular athlete and say, how would I rate the quality of my relationship? And if I put a three or a four, how might my, my implicit bias toward their demographics and their various identities be influencing that? And so, um, yeah, I wanted to just bring that to, to the table when we're thinking about identity here, coach well-being, as well as just the well-being of the relationship. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to jump in on the, um, uh, on the point you were talking about uh, values there and kind of identity. And, and when I talked about values earlier, I guess what I was referring to was kind of more than just like coach philosophy. What kind of coach do you want to be? But also what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of father or mother do you want to be? What kind of husband or wife do you want to be? What kind of friend do you want to be? And all of those things, you know, speak to those different multiple identities, which are really important because if you're pouring everything that you've got into being a coach and you're neglecting your family, then that's going to lead to issues. That's going to lead to problems. If you're pouring everything that you've got into being, you know, a good uh, family person and your relationships, and you're neglecting what's going on in your coach and what you what you want to do in your coaching career, like equally, that's going to also lead to problems and conflict. So, I think when I talk about coaches thinking about what their values are, it's in a whole range of different domains. You know, not just their um, uh, their, their their work life. It's about their personal life, their professional life, you know, uh, like spiritually, if if if, uh, if that's something that's important to them. Um, so, you know, a, a whole different range of things, which, again, speak to those different identities that you were talking about. And, you know, Hugh, you, you kind of brought them up with the, the, the sort of Instagram thing as well, uh, which is a really, really great exercise uh, to do. And I really encourage people to do that. Check your Instagram feed. I love that. You know, uh, it's interesting, Pete, another because I appreciate I'm coming here from a background of not knowing, I don't know much of the research, but I'm, I'm doing the applied work. And from an applied point of view, a great exercise as well to do is to go, right, me at my best, me at my worst, Te- 10 being best and 10 at worst. Uh, or sorry, 10 being best and one at worst. That beer is starting to hit. 
Um, so the point being is where are you now as a coach? And then if you rate yourself a five, you can ask yourself the question, right, why am I a five and not a four? And all the answers that you're going to give to that question are going to be positive things that you're already doing well as a coach, things that you're taking care of. And that's going to help to build and grow confidence. But that gives you sort of like the answer to what maybe you need more of when you ask yourself, I think I'm a five out of 10. Why am I not a four? And that will tell you what you're good at, what you're doing well. But similarly, you can ask yourself this, the question, what does it take to get to uh, a six? And the answers from that question are going to move you up a notch. So that's a very simple technique out of motivational interviewing. And it's just about building discrepancy. It's it's for those nerd people. Um, it's called, uh, I shouldn't say nerd people. I think everybody here has got a PhD apart from me. Um, but yeah, for, for the, <laughs> the, the, the nerd people, um, yeah, it's called a scaling ruler. Um, but yeah, just throw that out there and I need to get another beer because this is nearly empty. Sarah. What, yeah, what, I... Just, Sorry, just before you come in with something what is undoubtedly going to be enlightening, what are your thoughts on the ruler IQ test, Hugh? So you give someone a ruler, what do they do with it? And that's a good demonstration of your IQ. Do you measure something or we're obviously going to cut this or ping something or shove it up your nose? Right, here's the thing what you do with rulers. What would you do with a ruler, Hugh? If I got a ruler, what I would do is I would break it in half. So I imagine this is a metre long ruler. I break it in half and then a two two other rulers, right? And and you might think, oh, he's going to share the ruler. Now I've got two rulers. I'm going to put red tape around one, green tape around another. You've got a good ruler and a bad ruler. The kids do something good, you hit them with a good stick. They do something bad, <laughs> you hit them with a bad stick. That's called learning. This is cut. This is so cut. No, no, this is this is great. This is great. But that's not a ruler, Hugh. That's a meter stick. Well, how big was your school that's just bag? It's a big ruler, isn't it? He said a meter. <laughs> a meter stick. A ruler is no more than 30 centimeters. You didn't you define. Had, you had your wee ruler and your big have, ruler. Did you not have meter rules in school? Yeah, but they were. that was a meter stick, though. It's not a ruler, eh? Oh, well, I mean, it's a, a stick with markings on it, right? <laughs> like, what's the difference when it's bigger? <laughs> They're both rulers. They both measure. Um, it's taken 58 so, minutes for the 8% years to get in. <laughs> so would you also call, if you were like measuring a wall with a, with a measuring tape, would that would that also be a ruler? A <laughs> it's a measuring measuring tape. Tape. clearly a tape measure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's simple. Mm. <laughs> what it is. Well, go get a beer, Hugh. Go get a beer. This is, this is too good. This is the best bit. Yeah. I just want to go. I just want to go on record and say the eight percent thing was your idea. So you know, <laughs> on me. your head be it. Anna's, Anna's idea. Okay. She, she took the credit. As if that was very enlightening. I was very enlightened by what we just talked about. Um, I wanted to to kind of bring this back to to. I really, I'm on the same page with you with this values driven things. And what I've noticed in my classes is so if, if I were to actually start doing, and this is very observatory on my part, so I haven't really done any of this scientific research, but I always see, you know, we even just separated this by gender, for example, in my classes, a lot of the men, I'll walk them through the value. Okay. We have a values activity. We do that's really fun where it's called trash your values and they do 10 values and we have to trash them until we get down to one value. And if when we categorize that across students, a lot of especially the male athletes, because here in America, especially and I'm assuming probably the same in the UK, there's a lot of men that are coaches and that there's a gap in having female coaches. 
But a lot of the men are choosing things like work ethic and those very masculine, like what we have assigned as masculine characteristics. And we then equate masculinity to being born a man or being born a boy. So that sex versus gender expression uh, separation. And I often then ask the students, I say, okay, let's talk about work ethic, for example, because that's one that comes up. Number one value is work ethic. Let's talk about though the, and I'm assuming like here in America, we're having a lot of stuff. We just had the Derek Chauvin case go through with the George Floyd stuff. Um, so there's a lot of very racially charged things going on here in the United States. Um, let's talk about how white supremacy fuels work ethic. Let's talk about how religion, like not having idle hands, right? Like I was taught growing up in the church of idle hands is the devil's playground. So this whole concept of when really what it was is to just keep you so busy that you don't have time to actually rest and rejuvenate and that you feel guilty when you're resting rejuvenation, like when you're resting, because it's kind of connected to this spiritual sense or even to this concept of we, we've merged those two fields. And so not a, we need to talk about these values and, and how our identities and our demographics and the narrative we've been taught about that goes into the values that we choose and why are we even choosing these values? Who told us that we should choose these values? What system is pushing these values forward? So capitalism, well, what is cap like who, who's benefiting from capitalism? Um, and then how, so really trying to get the athletes or th these aspiring coaches and then coaches that are listening to this out there to really just take a second to, these are my values. Now let me take a moment to think about why I chose these values. Am I choosing these values based on former coaches that I had that are influencing these values I have now, or maybe parents? Um, so things of that nature, just to kind of deepen that understanding of our values and bringing in that kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion piece into it. Can I come in on that? Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting that you, you kind of mentioned the the difference between perhaps male values and female values when you do that exercise and what comes out. Because if you think about the nature of high performance sport itself, um, and you think about the values that are inherent in high performance sport, it's about strength and grit and determination and pushing through and you know those are the things that we talk about in sport those are the things that we celebrate so you know we end up with this culture where you know to bring it back to well-being nobody wants to admit that they're struggling or nobody wants to um show that that vulnerability we've kind of pathologized in in the west the idea that you know well we've kind of pathologized really perfectly normal emotions like anxiety well that's a bad thing we shouldn't show it you know like and um you know, it just leads to this 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 culture in high performance sport, like I say, where um, we're, we're hesitant. We've kind of adopted those, as as you described them, Sarah. Those kind of like really hyper masculine type values within sport that stop people from showing vulnerability and stop people from seeking help. And that's why we end up with you know coaches placing their own self care and their own well being like right on the back seat. Um, yeah. I'll come to you in just a second here, if that's all right. And I think there's, it comes back to something, I think it was Sarah talked about, like normative narratives and stories that we tell ourselves about and what's normal as we exist within within high performance sport. And I think it's widely accepted that 
high performance sport is inherently health damaging. So as an athlete, you you know that you're going to get injured at some point in your career or at several points in your career. And and that's widely accepted. And I suppose uh, do coaches too at an elite level believe that um, that working in high performance sport is inherently health damaging to them as well, both physically in terms of the demands on them physiologically to be involved in that sport, loss of sleep, lots of travel, you know, working hard. Um, but also um, recognising that it's implicitly and inherently health damaging in terms of their mental health. So they know that they're going to be um, tired for large periods of time and that physical exhaustion leads to uh, mental exhaustion, leads to emotional exhaustion. Uh, and we know over time, uh, if uh, talking about appraisal and appraisal of stressors becomes relatively maladaptive and we start to view stresses as being negative, yeah, and our stress response inherently becomes negative, then those accumulation of stressors over time um, contribute towards the development of, of burnout. And we know we know that is a problem that isn't necessarily uh, getting the attention it deserves within high performance sport. And um, Sarah, we had a conversation back in January around, um, you know, it's going to take something pretty bad to happen for us to stand up and pay attention to this as uh, as something that um, that is important within within high performance sports. So how do we change that narrative? How do we change those normative depictions and prescriptions of what it's like to be a coach within within high performance? Because speaking to the identity again, Sarah, which you talked about to me before around this hereditary trauma. So we just accept that, you know, that's what our coaches went through and thus we need to go through that our, ourselves because it's just accepted as part of the course as being a high performance coach. So what what do we do to change the narrative and you know there's a question always swilling around in my head around social media and we see stories pretty much every day or every other day of of uh, athletes speaking out and talking about their well-being where are the role models from the coaching world and um, speaking the same truth and um, are we afraid to because of this um, notion that it could uh, impact upon job security we may be viewed as broken within the system and may not be employable um, or is it something else? Um, I'm keen to just get your uh, get your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I I think we're actually seeing a lot more of it. I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think we are seeing coaches come out and talk about mental health issues, and 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 you know the fact that athletes are doing it is really encouraging because it's just putting that conversation out there um, that mental health is a perfectly reasonable thing to talk about. Uh, and stress and burnout and we, you know we are seeing that from coaches as well I think you're right I think a lot of times um, we're seeing that after coaches have perhaps finished their coaching career so they're not necessarily worried about the the fallout from talking about mental health issues but um, yeah I, th I think in that respect we are definitely moving in the right direction in terms of opening up those conversations about mental health and, and, and well-being um, so yeah so I, I certainly see that. You know Pete um I think there's an issue here for me, and the issue is that, you know, I, I've had a mental health issue myself. Um, I I work in high performance sport. Um, I've been a, a coach for quite a long period of time as well, heavily involved. It, it's a demanding, difficult role, and I'm always concerned about talking about it. Uh, and part of the reason around that is because of the labels and perceptions around that. But I also think again. I am a bit concerned when people start using mental health and I want to talk about the negative side of 
over attaching to this idea of I have a mental health issue because people will say oh uh, I'm depressed and like no you're not you have depression because you 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 have toenails but you would never say I am toenail mm. you know um, but that I mean that sounds a little bit ridiculous that I'm saying that but you know I hope you don't go home and say I am toenail Pete but um, the <laughs> that actually comes from, I think, is it Alfred Karbinsky and about semantics and language, if I remember rightly. But the issue is that people can sometimes overattach to that. And by sharing that in public, it's then a case of people always go to them and talk to them about these things. And that then becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Like you wouldn't actually go up to somebody and say, like, oh, have you got have you have you sprained your ankle again lately? Or have you got the cold again? You know, but. But for some reason, depression sticks to you, you know, and it's kind of like, when are we going to learn to talk about mental health from a point of view of like, this is just like getting the cold. It mm. doesn't define you. You get it. You deal with it. And, and you maybe hopefully move on from it. You know, I see this with an athlete where they share it and then the press pick up on it and the press go back in 2004. He had depression. It's like, my Christ, it's nearly two decades ago. Like, we can let that go. So I think there's an issue of um, over over labeling and and again also with younger athletes they're over familiar with the terms and they they bring them up uh, as colloquial terms which puts staff as well I find uh, on this kind of like heightened alert of like they said they're depressed but they might just be having a bad Tuesday. So I think there's a there's something there about it, learning as a coach uh, to understand you know the limits of what these language uh, the words mean, uh, how you apply them to yourself, how you apply them to others, and also how you support you and your team around these issues. But I just wanted to throw that out there because I thought it was important. Um, Pete. Yeah, no, I, I I think you're absolutely right. I think you know those things are important, and um, I guess you know it wasn't that long ago that these things weren't talked about at all uh, and now they are being talked about and we've still got a long way to go but we are moving in the right direction when it comes to having conversations about these sort of things um but no i i, I totally appreciate what you what you're saying there about you know i'm not an anxious person i am somebody who is experiencing anxious thoughts at this time or i'm not depressed i'm just experiencing depressive thoughts at this time and kind of those labels um so yeah i i i agree but i just think you know we're we're certainly moving in the right direction, but yeah, there's there's still a long way to go. Cheers, and, and thanks for offering us that that cue. And, and again, um, I'm imagining when when your episode comes out with with me and and, and Tony, I'm where I spoke speak openly uh, about about my um, my well-being uh, within the context of that episode. Um, I'm reminded of, of recently doing a job application and having to tick a box as to whether or not my mental health is a disability. Um, so are we really moving on when it's perceived now as a disability in a box to be ticked? Um, I'm not quite sure yet. I think I still need to resolve that one. And I think just building on your 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 um, thoughts about um, perhaps it being perceived as a weakness, I see my um, issues with, with well-being as probably one of my biggest strengths. Um, because of what it teaches me around my character and my resolve uh, and my ability to to get through some, some pretty fucking dark times um, but still come out the other end of it okay because it all it always is just a moment in time. Uh, it doesn't define you at all. And I think you're right around the level of sensitivity people have 
um, with uh, with just treading on eggshells around you because they're afraid to confront it or discuss it. Um, but they always do inevitably confront it or discuss it, but do it, do it in a way that's really bloody insensitive. I'm like, you don't need to address it every time that we meet. It was a moment in time. It's not who I am right now. It was who I was back then. So just just echo what you were what you were saying. And um, Laurie, you wanted to come in, and then we'll go to Hugh. Yeah. Um. I think. You know, it it should be applauded. You know, knowledge of self, interpersonal knowledge, uh, as a coach. You know, it's I think it's a really important, and there's a lot of evidence to back this up. Of course. Um you know, an important construct of expertise as a coach, understanding yourself. And, you know, when we think about how we might, um, f- from an individual perspective, react and respond to certain situations and whether we're maybe more predisposed to um, a, po- a high positive affect state or a, or a high negative affect state. And, and I think knowledge of that and understanding of that is really important in, in your role. And it doesn't mean that certain things are OK for it to be continually happening to you, going back to those situational factors that we discussed earlier. But, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it demonstrates um, that you've spent time understanding who you are as an individual. That was a total ramble, but hopefully there was some sense in that. Hugh, please save me. Well, you know, Laurie, uh, there's no saving you. That's that's just no. I'm only joking. You. In fairness, um, I think you're right. Uh, there's a degree of self self reflection and introspection, and I think. I mean, I didn't realize we we're going to get onto this topic, but I, I think the big issue for me is that it's difficult to actually go shit. I'm depressed. I actually have depression and get to that point and, and make that uh, make that sort of realization. That's a big leap because you don't ever view yourself as somebody with a mental health issue. Um, so that it's like you know, it's a revelation in a sense when you realize you're at rock bottom. Um, so I think knowing about the steps and the way down is probably really important um, and could stop people from reaching the bottom. But um, I think there's probably like something here in terms of like how does the system impact elite sport and how does the system play a part in supporting this? Um, I don't know. Anna, have you any thoughts on this? That was clever. I liked how you did that. <laughs> um, yeah, so Sarah, uh, Sarah mentioned many moons ago um, something about the system and the effect of the system. Um, and I really, really love, Sarah, how you've managed to bring lots of really important points into some of your discussions like privileges and the the context you're working in and the, the so- social contexts in particular um but yeah there's been lots of chat about working as a coach and like hard work etc and i just wondered if coaches or coaching status as a profession is something that is is feeding into this um and perhaps it's not valued enough perhaps it's not developed enough as a profession is this feeding into coaches sort of well-being at all yeah i think that uh in how i wrote so my book is is sectioned up into three parts so there's the first part is the thank you letters the second part is the more critical letters and the last part is what i call the truth grammatically my editor wouldn't let me do a lowercase t for truth uh because she just wasn't about it but it's definitely with a lowercase t as far as what i'm trying to get across on these are just my points of view on if I was brought to the table, what I would bring, but also honoring a lot of other points of view of like how we're at a table here. 
And one of the things I bring up in the in part three is not only do people have a deer coach letter, but they also have a deer sport letter. And what I mean by that is when I was, I actually offer my own deer coach letter in part three, which is a uh, collective letter to all of my coaches where I didn't really have a lot of great coaching experiences, unfortunately. Um, but I realized in writing my letter and also in the letters that athletes wrote me um, and in speaking to them is that this is a larger system issue. And so while I initially thought my hands were tied behind my back as an athlete because it was the coach tying my hands behind my back, the coach's hands were tied behind their back because the system, sport, if you will. So I actually lead in in halfway through part three, I invite the audience as, as I invite this same audience to write their own dear sport letter, um, almost as if to write it to a sport administrator, to, to uh, write it to sport as a whole. And so I think when we think about um, uh, sport, when we think about the system is we need to think about the history. And I would love to kind of start this dialogue too about like the history of sport in the UK, but at least here, you know, the history is very like sport was created by men for men to produce quote unquote better men. And so we had title nine in 1974 that came about that allowed for uh, the entrance of non-discrimination of uh, inferior populations into uh all, all, or all environments, but sport especially. But what we didn't do is we didn't really look at the foundation from which people were chasséed into this environment. So basically they chasséed my female body into a male-dominated environment and told me to deduce my femaleness into maleness in order if I wanted to assimilate properly. And so I think we need to look at the history of sport. And this is not, I know we've been speaking a lot about elite level, high performance sport, but thinking about youth especially is uh, how are we making sure, and I, I've seen so much, like we have a how to coach girls uh, coaching course here in America, which infuriates me because just the fact that we are having a separate how to coach girls coaching course is insinuating that um Girls aren't that they are this like op separate from we need more education on coaching them. Um, a lot of those things in those courses are how emotional girls can be. Um, well, if I remember correctly, my brother came home many of nights crying. You know, everybody's raising their hand now. They're like, let me talk because we have socially constructed and I was brought up in a world being told that I should be more emotional where men were brought up being told that if you were emotional, that you you don't identify. Like boys, if you're emotional, then you're not being a quote-unquote man. And so kind of bringing in this system, you know, talking to maybe the sport administrators of this audience and saying, how can we make sure even the semantics, you, you brought this in, semantics matter? How are we making sure to not discriminate based on trying to optically look inclusive when we're actually being exclusive? So, who, so whoever, I don't know whose hand went up first, but by, by goodness, just... I, I'm, I'm going to jump in here, but I'm going to hand over to Laurie, Laurie very quickly. I just want to say, right, when people say women are more emotional, okay, that's true if you remove anger as an emotion, because men are angry a lot of the time. But on a serious note, people should look Speak at emotion. Pete, you have to work with me. I know you're angry. <laughs> but no, in, in all seriousness, though, like, People think of emotion as like a point or an explosion or an expression of emotion. And actually, emotion happens 24 hours a day. It's like the weather. You notice when it's sunny, you notice when it's snowing, but you notice nothing in between. 
and that's just like an emotion. It's like you notice when you're angry, you notice when you're happy, you notice when you're ha- sad, you notice the extremes, but you're always emotional. So the idea that women are more emotional is just complete horseshit. It's actually a case of everyone's emotional. They all have emotions. They happen 24 hours a day. You're always in an emotional state. So I'm just going to bust that myth. Laurie, you've got something valuable to say. No, I don't. What a great input, Hugh. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm so glad you beat me to it. Um, Sarah, I can only, I'm, I'm going to share this because I'm now a, a can and a half down in the 8% minimum. But there are boundaries right so some people are very acutely aware of boundaries and others are less so so you might have some that walk into a room and actually they really don't notice the number of men and women in that room or lots of other different boundaries that that we discuss within society and others will notice some more and I'm definitely not in any way ready or prepared or knowledgeable enough to walk to begin to enter that space but you're talking a lot about uh, gender within within coaches and so do you think that there are implicit perceptions of gendered leadership within coaching and if so do you think it um, affects the coach-athlete relationship? For sure I, I think that there is an implicit bias if not an explicit bias toward coaches need to be these cool calm collective uh, ice water in your veins, responsible type people. And it really, when you look at, if, if we were to, so in my methods of coaching class, for example, I'll, I'll, I always ask two questions. One day we'll talk about what does it mean to be a quote unquote good coach? And we'll have everybody kind of write on the board what they think that is. Um, and this is very subjective. This is influenced by their past experiences. And then another day we'll say, what does it mean to be a quote unquote good athlete, right? And a lot of those, what I bring to light, I infuse diversity, equity, inclusion into all my classes as I say, um, you know, when we write on the board, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? You know, they're putting over here a leader under the man column, leadership, steadfast, responsible, all these things. And then semantically, we think an opposite of a man is a woman. So basically the whole list that we would put for a woman is the opposite of the man list. When we're writing down things of what it means to be a good coach or a good athlete, we're putting down things that are considered what it means to be a good man. And so we're implicitly going in that if a a woman gets hired into a sport position in any coaching capacity, there's already the implicit bias there of you're waiting on them to mess up instead of a man getting uh, hired and, oh, they're going to come in and they're going to lead the brigade type of a thing. And so if a woman gets emotional and we see this, so like the Serena Williams versus, you know, she had one one go of it where she got a little feisty in a match because the the refing wasn't going so great. And all of a sudden the headlines that you see is, you know, temper tantrum Serena Williams type of stuff. There's all this stuff where if this was, uh, you know, a male tennis player doing this, it would say, you know, uh, heated debate over refing, what, whatever it might be. Like there's this very sexist narrative. And so I think women already have, as in my sport is a microcosm of society, they already have kind of that tick against them. And again, this is couched within gender, but we could do this within races like black versus white, uh, homosexual versus heterosexual too. Um, you're already coming in, uh, knowing and there's research that actually shows that if you're a female and I've, I've experienced this as well and, and maybe Lori and Anna you have too you almost have to gain a liking before people will respect your competence in a in a situation so you come in as a female and you know like if I'm coaching I almost have to gain 
the athletes respect first to get them to like me. And then I have to come in and show my competence. So you're already having to use so much energy coming in just to get the athletes to like you for them to then identify you as competent. And men can just come in and have that. They have the privilege to just come in and be able to demonstrate competence without having to really care about having the athletes like them because athletes will just say, well, I like you because you are competent and and we don't have that privilege. And so I think those are things when we're looking at the micro level approach. So I want to bring this to the audience on what can you do right now? Boots on the ground. Um, if you, let's say you are a male coach right right now, it's a being aware of the language that you're using. And it could be something as simple as using gender neutral language instead of saying you guys in a room that's mixed gendered. It's saying you all everyone. Um, and if you do say you guys catching yourself and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, you all are you all are not all guys, everyone. Um, I think at the macro level as well, it is uh, understanding those implicit biases and also understanding the difference between equality and equity. So equality, right? Like we want equal uh, treatment for all humans. Equity is understanding that there's people that are able to start at the start line versus people that have to start a couple feet back. And what can we do in order to give them a little bit more leverage to get up to that start line? It's not providing them more privilege or more opportunities. It's saying that you weren't given opportunities from the get go. So how can we maybe even this out so that you're at the same starting point as other people that are more privileged. Um, and maybe that is looking at pay. Maybe that is looking at um, the job descriptions for women, uh, being able to talk to your athletic department, to athletes about these implicit biases that are there so that it can come into awareness and be uh, conscious, less implicit. So I, I want to raise a contentious point here because I think equity has no place within elite sport. Because essentially, elite sport is all about winning. Um, and if you're not uh, at a certain position, you're not selected. Uh, because essentially, it is about can you be in the top eight in the world? That's what your funding's based on. So I think there's a difference between approaches within, say, participation sport versus elite sport. Um, so I think it's kind of how do you actually. Uh, take take apart the idea of this is a professional domain versus this is a domain for all because elite sport is not for all um and i work in paralympic sport i work with people who have severe disabilities former veterans people who've got congenital congenital disabilities and even within those sports it's not for all it's for those who are of a certain standard and of a certain caliber so there is a difference between elite sport and participation sport and that needs to be sort of considered as to how you coach within each environments so i think there's definitely within when you regard equity versus equality there's there's something there and ultimately by giving other people more there's a cost to that as a time as a coach if you're giving other people more by the very nature of that you're giving other people less because you're actually committing time to that and that's less of your time that you have to give to people who may produce uh, a higher result these are real everyday trade-offs that you have to make in an elite performance environment. So I don't think elite sport has a place for equity at all. One of the things that I had put uh, when we were kind of chatting a little over here in the chat box was um, to expand on this conversation, Hugh, is it's a trickle-down effect. And so elite sport is not completely separate from the pipeline that starts as youth sport. 
And so you're, I'm gathering and please correct me if I'm wrong, like jump in. Um, you're, and again, I'm also one and a half, 8.1% send too. So that you're separating them, you're making it that over here we have kind of participation sport. Um, and then over here we have elite sport and that there's no correlation between the two. My argument would be that there is like you have to in order to get into sport, you start in sport at the maybe participation level. You might kind of dabble in and out depending upon maybe you're doing travel ball or more competitive stuff. And then you go to participation like that, you know, up until the age of 12. But all of that is feeding into and it's compounding upon to get to where we're at at the elite level. And the elite level is mimicking in some way what we do have at the competitive youth level at the college level at the all these different levels and so I think that we need to make sure that we don't necessarily completely separate the two um, in that it is this trickle-down effect in that elite sport itself is a micro every system we have is a microcosm of a larger system and how is that pipeline of youth that leads into another level, that leads into another level, that gets up to the Olympic, that gets into the elite, the professional, influencing. So your argument, I, I will respectfully be on the other side of that, of saying that there is no equity uh, or there shouldn't be any equity in the elite space is, yes, there should. And maybe at the elite space, we need to do a better job of looking at the history of that pipeline on how did we even get here, that there is maybe even at the elite level, less women represented, less black people represented, less LGBTQIA communities represented that don't feel safe to come out and identify as LGBTQIA at that point. Because Pete, wrapping this back around to the very beginning, job security, there's research based here in this, especially United States, of individuals, women who identify as lesbian, not wanting to come out and say that they are lesbian because of fear of losing their job, because it doesn't align with the athletic director um, or the general manager's point of view. Maybe the, they're more conservative in nature. And so I do think equity has a place and a stance in elite sport. Um, and we like, it's a spoke and mirrors game of, well, this is elite. We don't, we don't deal with this fluffy stuff. But in reality, it's just as prevalent in elite as it is in youth participation, youth competitive. I think equity, as I understand it, is equal outcomes for all people. And you can't have equal outcomes if there's only one medal. Um, whatever, however, what I would say is that creating an environment where somebody can come out because of their sexuality or whatever, that's a 100% uh, needed within elite sport. I think the difference is that when we look at the level of, say, for example, you have to be able to squat 100 kilograms to get onto the program to become an elite athlete because that's a necessary determinant of performance. If you don't meet that, there is no equity there. It's a case of you either meet it or you don't, regardless of whatever situation you come from. Um, whether you're black, white or gender, 200, you know, 200 kilograms doesn't lie. It's, it's like you have to hit the target. You have to hit the numbers. There is predetermined uh, performance characteristics to express elite performance within sport. So what I'm talking about specifically when I say there's no room for equity is the person must meet the demands of the sport to compete in it. And at elite level, that's what it's all about. I think what you expressed is that uh, performance or that participation sport 
uh, mimics elite sport. Well, I think that's where participation sport needs to be stronger in its morals and its values, not the case of actually mimicking elite sport because that's how it's done and we're trying to get them there, but actually participation sport for the sake of participation sport. So I think it's it's a disconnect there is actually participation sport needs to stand alone and realize that that's a different arena. It's very in a very real circumstance that I've faced is my job and seven other people's jobs are on the line if we don't hit a certain standard within a competition. So, you know, it's not about, oh, well, you know, because of equity, there's this magic thing that, you know, somebody's going to come in and, and, and say it's all right because you are more equitable. No, we have to hit the number. And if you don't hit the number, you're out. Everybody loses their job. And it doesn't matter, you know, who you've employed or what your employment processes is, whether they're, you know, black, they're of different gender or whatever, they're out. So in elite sport, you hit the numbers and that's what how it works. Yeah, I just I, I I wonder if I wonder if we're talking at cross purposes a little bit. I don't know. Um and I've had one eleven percent beer and one eight percent beer, so this I, I don't know how this is gonna go. But um, you know, I wonder if we're talking about cross talking at cross purposes because you know, equality of you know, here you're talking about you know, equality of opportunity. Uh, well, no, you're talking about equality of outcome. And I think what we're actually talking about is equality of opportunity for outcome. And I think those two things are very different. So nobody's suggesting lowering the bar for, you know, particular groups. So a 200 kilogram lift is a 200 kilogram lift, right? And no one's suggesting that for certain groups, we make that 150 kilograms so that they have equality of outcome, right? Um, but I think, you know, if we're looking at equality, equality of opportunity in elite sport and in coaching in particular, I mean, I can speak to examples. Um, you know, Sarah's talked a lot about kind of gender. I've talked about race examples where in a, in, in a league, for example, that is like the NBA is 80 percent black athletes. Right. And the number of coaches who are black is around about 30 percent. So as a potential as a proportion of the population, that's pretty high, but as a proportion of the population of that sport and in that league that's actually pretty low so what are we looking at we're looking at there's some there's something happening between the you know uh, uh there's something happening between the, the the court and the um coaching staff there's something happening between you know the, MB, the nfl is the same there's something happening in between the pitch which is 75 percent or 70 percent black and the coaching staff where there's like three coaches out of 32 teams there's something happening there uh where there's that there isn't equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome so i think when we talk about this idea of um you know equality of well equity has no place in elite sport i i would disagree with that with the caveat that i wonder whether we're talking a little bit across purposes here um i, I, I don't know I, what, yeah. what do you think I think the difference is that whenever I talk about equity, that to me says equal outcomes um, and equal outcomes based on preferential support for people who are not at that certain level. But I think what you're raising there is the difference between, I believe the term is called stacking in sports, where the predominant, you know, the thinking players, the quarterbacks are white, the linebackers are black type thing, the captains are white, the uh, fast wingers are black. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of difference you're talking about there and also transferring to coaching. I think whenever I think of equity, when 
that's put in place that's active measures to promote equal opportunity um as opposed to equal opportunity that's actually there because you know that's people can do what they want you know mm-hmm. it's like for example you know you grew up in sheffield and i grew up in kirkcobin and you played basketball when you drop the ball it bounced back because you're surrounded by concrete when i drop the ball it gets stuck in the mud and the difference is you know is that words is there going to be equity if we go on to play basketball together because i didn't have the same background and upbringing from you because i didn't have the same resources like how do we account for that i think that speaks to a real tension for me working for national agency for sport where we invest both in in performance outcomes and and in wider societal outcomes and opportunities to participate in sport and I tend to disagree with with you around uh, equity when you're when you're under a bar and you're trying to bench or squat X amount as a as a performance threshold. That that's not where the opportunity or equity matters. It it matters around the uh, when you're a kid and you first participated in that sport. Who are the role models within your community? Is there a boxing club, a football club, a rugby club? Uh, are there opportunities to sail? But of course there's not, because there's a postcode lottery around um, around these opportunities for sport. And unfortunately, the lowest 20% lose the postcode lottery every bloody time. Um, and we we strive really hard to invest money to ensure that sport reflects society. But it never can. It never can. Um, so how do we how do we how do we balance the scale so that when it comes to that moment in time, that snapshot in time when performance matters, <laughs> that people who arrive at that point have had a fairly equitable uh, route to get there as opposed to whether or not they can squat 200 kilos versus 205 kilos is a determinant as to whether they're successful or not. That success is determined five years beforehand, 10 years beforehand, 15 years beforehand, based on whether they live in a council estate somewhere or they live uh, they live in a, in a new build uh, five bedroom home somewhere. And unfortunately it, it can be, and it is as crude as that. You know, I think it's an interesting point to raise because if we talk about does sport represent society, I think we can judge that based of how the medals are won within each uh, country. You know, if you look at a country and go like, that country's national sport is basketball and they won loads of basketball medals, there's probably something good happening there. But if, say, you look at a country and they're winning medals at sliding down uh, the back of a mountain on a bacon tray, um or sorry luge i think it's called i don't know um but if if that's they're winning medals in that but they're not a winter sport you kind of ask yourself like is money been spent equitably if actually you know that's been funded so i totally take your point and i agree with you i rarely agree with anyone derek so consider yourself lucky <laughs> is that point to end the podcast no it's not uh, laurie did you have a point to come in on yeah, but I fear it will not be coherent. And that um, I, I agree with the vast majority of what's been shared. But I also noticed that over the course of that discourse, we've spoken so much about differences between people and things. And and what about those of us who see similarities more than differences? And what happens when, as a woman, um, or no, as a as a person, as a person who, like all of you, are sat in your homes and breathe and eat and run and and enjoy very similar things in a day. I mean, we all have much more in similarity than we do in difference. 
So when I'm offered a role, because I fall into a box, um, I can find that incredibly frustrating because as, as a person, I think wealth have had huge opportunity in my life. I see great similarity across people as opposed to difference. And I therefore don't wish to be given opportunity because I fall into a certain box. I want to be given that opportunity because I've worked hard and I have expertise above and beyond the other people that I share enormous similarities with. So there is another side to this discussion that I think is really important. And of course, that's where we all hope to get to. And I recognise that um, for uh, we're so far away from that in many sense. And and, and it's important to recognise the barriers to people entering, progressing within sport. Um, But I I tend to typically see similarities um, so it can be frustrating in a different sense for me at times. I, I totally understand your point. Um, I totally get that. Uh, I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Um, I think that, first of all, you wouldn't be hired, right? If it wasn't for your CV, your qualities, your qualifications, whatever it is, um, you, you just wouldn't get the job. So the the idea of um like affirmative action and and however you want to phrase it i think people have a problem with because they see people getting hired or whatever because of some sort of hiring policy right like you have to have a woman on the board so we're going to go out and hire that that it that doesn't happen in practice that doesn't happen if if you weren't qualified you wouldn't get that job um the the kind of second part to that is that if i'm I'll give you a couple of examples, right? I've been asked to be part of a couple of uh, things, boards, whatever, because they're looking to diversify and they're looking to like hire somebody of color, right? So they've come to me. Um, first of all, they w- they wouldn't do that if I wasn't qualified to do it. But second of all, like I don't care. Like if I get a seat at that table, then I can do stuff. Right, I can make an impact. I can have an impact on that once I've got a seat at that table. So the fact that they've come to me because, right, we're looking to diversify. You've got a brown face. We'll have you, right? That, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't care. Like, I'll take that because, like I say, it gets me a seat at the table, and from that seat at the table, I can then start to make an impact and make a change. Um, but yeah, I, I think we, we've kind of gone off track from the from the whole podcast of coach well-being, like significantly off track. But I think these are really important discussions to have. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of um, important issues that I think have an impact on on well-being. You know, all of those considerations, all of those like, you know, um, like, am I qualified to do this job? Why have I been hired to do this job? Am I, um, uh, do I have an equal opportunity to get this job in the first place? I think these are all important things to consider when it comes to, to coach well-being. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we've gone a little bit off track, but I, I, I think that's OK. I'm so glad you shared that, Pete. Yeah. I think we've been on track the entire time because diversity, <laughs> equity, and inclusion is coach well-being. I, I personally believe. Yeah, in line with what people are saying, I'm, I'm keen to bring us back full circle a little bit. And I'm going to uh, unashamedly quote, uh, quote Pete and colleagues here um, in advance of, of framing a question. Um, coaches could benefit from having somebody who sits objectively on the side, not somebody who will explain how to do this or that, somebody who'll ask questions and help coaches to find their own strength. 
mean, that's a pretty powerful statement and comment in relation to who might or might not support coaches in the context of their work relative to their well-being. So I suppose the question I have is, who is there to help the coach? Did, did I really write that? Yes, in 2017. <laughs> okay, okay fair, fair enough. Um, I, okay, so... In, in in all of the work that I've done with coaches, um, the one thing that consistently comes up as a source of um, support, um, a, 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 a coping strategy, I guess, if you will, is um, the time spent with other coaches. And that's not necessarily coaches from within their sport. We talked about this a little bit earlier, the, the kind of conflict within sports. So maybe you want to find coaches from outside of different sports. But every kind of workshop or um, study or whatever it is that I've done with coaches, the one thing that they've talked about is not the, okay, well, you know, we'll sit down and talk about strategies for dealing with anxiety or we'll talk about building confidence or blah, 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 blah. Like all of that stuff is kind of by the by. The one thing that they've always said consistently that is the most important thing is just spending like an hour and a half a week in a room with a bunch of other coaches like talking about stuff. Like that's the, you know, that's the kind of thing that they've all highlighted, always highlighted as being really, really beneficial. Even if it's not anything to do with sport or talking about sport, just being able to sit in a room and talk about stuff. And it gives them the opportunity to realize that, oh, right, you're, you're going through that as well. Uh, you're experiencing that as well. Oh, right, you're coping with it that way. Oh, actually, I do something this way. Oh, well, that seems to work. Oh, maybe I'll try that. So, you know, it's not about the the coping strategies or the anxiety management or the confidence or the resilience or blah 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 it's just about sitting down in a room and having the opportunity now um i i i mentioned before about um that sort of hesitance to do that within your own sport but you know coaches go to conferences they go to online conferences they kind of meet people in person like they're they're ready-made support groups for talking about this stuff and just take that opportunity network like put yourself out there be vulnerable speak to coaches from other sports and you know that's how you form that sort of support network so other coaches i think are absolutely invaluable in providing that that support Pete, I love what you're saying. I want to expand upon that because I think that's definitely such a, I mean, even with your research, I mean, that's what coaches are saying. I think we we stay in our silos when we do that too. So I think while like, yes, let's, let's do that. Let's get these uh, support groups. There's even support groups out there for like uh, partners of coaches too, right? Like how can we support you uh, while your partner is away for forever, it feels like, and you're here trying to raise a family, kind of like a single parent home in a way. Um, and how can we bridge that gap for coaches to where in that support group with coaches, it's not just a, uh, coaches teaching coaches. And so you stay in this silo. How can we bridge a gap? And so one of the things I talk about in my book, Dear Coach, is uh, doing a better job of bridging the gap between academics and athletics and doing, um, like right now I'm in a tenure track position, which means that I am evaluated on getting tenure within, gosh, two years away now, where uh, based on research, service, and uh, teaching. But within my research, within any of those three cylinders, nobody's evaluating me on how well I'm disseminating my research 
to the people that are boots on the ground doing the work. And so, for example, Pete, you do such fabulous work on coach stress and burnout and stuff that we need to get into the hands of coaches and how much, and maybe this is different from UK to how the United States does tenure as well. So I need to acknowledge that. But for example, my research, if I, thankfully I'm at Adams State University, that's a pretty small university and I'm able to put my book as a research component, but a lot of universities would not identify my book publication as uh, qualified to be a part of my research and my tenure and promotion packet. So there's so many scholars that are doing phenomenal work that are not, they don't have the energy or the time to disseminate it like I have in a book situation, which is why I actually chose this job, um, which is a job I chose that has, my salary is way less than anywhere else I could have gone, but I was very passionate about writing this book. How can we get it? How can we even change academia in such a way that we're incorporating in the tenure and promotion or even just in the research where not only are you doing the research and maybe even getting it published in research journals of which there's classism attached to people getting access to those research journals, but that you're also bridging that gap between what you're doing it and getting it out into the world to the people that actually need it. Um, so yes, the Step one, having that coaching support group where you're talking to them. And how are we? We actually have a, a network here in the United States that's just getting started. I need to give a shout out to Megan Wilson and Dr. Brian Garrity that they're starting this uh, sport professional knowledge network where we're trying to bridge that gap um, in getting research into the hands and making it not as inaccessible. Um, so a better relationship between athletics and uh, academia, but also just bridging the gaps in a bunch of other ways. So it's not this cyclical effect of coaching teaches coach teaching coaches, which is really just perpetuating a cyclical problem we've seen for decades. You know, I find it interesting that when we look at how coaches are surrounded by other people like themselves, and other people who are different from themselves. It's very often that we turn to people who are like us to seek opinions and to confirm our biases and beliefs. And me and Pete don't always get along. In fact, I don't even know why Pete likes me, but he really does. And I think this is this is interesting because we we need to step outside our comfort zone. We need to look to people who are not like us and who have different experiences and, and come from different sports. And I think some of the best things I've learned is have been from female coaches. Um, some of the best things I've learned from Pete, you know, have been amazing. There's lots that I've had to actually sort of like throw out as well that Pete's told me. No, no offense, Pete. But I think, as Marcus Aurelius said, what's good for the bee is good for the hive, and what's good for the hive is what's good for the bee. So whenever you act, you should act in a way that's good for you and that's good for other people. Um, so take responsibility to look after yourself and take responsibility to look after others in your team because we've been talking about coaches, but everything we've talked about is relevant to the sports psychologist, to the strength coach, to the physios, to everyone else who's working in elite sport. Um, there's no there's no corner where what we've said doesn't really apply. And it's it's nice to think of ourselves not as ourselves, but as a society of people trying to make other people better. So that would be my summary, Derek. I don't know if you've any thoughts on that, but my beer's probably empty, uh, as is my head. This went exactly the way that you thought it was going to go. Admit it. Uh, we did. We did. <laughs> uh, we, we've got we've got a quick fire question to finish us off. Uh, what one thing can sport do differently in supporting the well-being of sport coaches? Let's go to Sarah first. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, and like I say in my book, Dear Coach, when I wish I could have told you letters from your athletes, I think a great starting point is to start coach mental health initiatives. And so kind of wrap, bring this back around to Pete, what you said about, yes, I think it's great that coaches can have that, uh, uh, to be able to talk amongst coaches, maybe even have that complaining area, like, hey, let's just cathartically like get this off our chest. How are we also providing them with uh, third-party objective resources for them to go and be able to process some of the anxieties um, of their day without having to unfold too much upon their coaching colleagues or too much upon their significant others, um, and that they can come in and, and really just be uh, get a different perspective, a more mentally a healthy perspective on things. So coach mental health initiatives is what I think from a macro and even a meso level is what's needed. Agree. Um, I, I, I've used this analogy before and I'm going to use it again. Look, if I'm being chased by a lion, you know, the being able to meditate and being able to relax and stay calm under pressure is really helpful. But what I actually want is a lion to stop chasing me, right? So for me, it's about organizations making a real commitment to the well-being of coaches and and by that i mean like throwing money at it okay it it's a commitment to funding intervention research on coach well-being and coach mental health it's about um funding coach education and including mental health education for coaches and like I say, awareness of mental health beyond things like stress and burnout, but things like alcohol, uh, you know, and addiction and sleep uh, disturbance. And it's a real commitment to funding research on that stuff. And the bottom line is the organizations need to commit to making this an organizational problem rather than an individual one. Awesome. I, I guess it kind of speaks to where my head's at the moment around a very pathogenic view of, of what well-being is within the context of sport and we consider it around risk and illness and the treatment of disease rather than maybe a more holistic uh, or dare I say it's a mutagenic view of, of well-being which is around the creation of health uh, uh, thriving flourishing in the context uh, of, of our roles and, and there's there's one thing perhaps that we didn't speak of in, in all of this which is around detection and early detection of issues with and in well-being for coaches because sometimes when they present with some of the manifestations of uh, uh, or, or symptoms of well-being, perhaps sometimes that's too late. So maybe just a, a parting thought from, from yourselves around what can we do around early detection uh, of, of, of stress or burnout in the context of high performance sport coaches. So we don't arrive at a point where they are perhaps on the verge of, or dare I say, it, even broken as a consequence of what they're dealing with when we recognize that help seeking isn't the norm suppression is something that goes on quite a lot we don't necessarily express vulnerability so quite often when we're made aware of issues of well-being perhaps it's too late so what can we do about early detection so uh, i think what's really important here is the understanding of the symptoms of burnout and the symptoms associated with mental health issues and from a personal point the gad the GAD, General Anxiety Disorder Questionnaire, and the PHQ-9 um, are two simple questionnaires that you can get online and you can fill them in. There's seven questions and nine questions and they'll give you an output as to um, whether or not you're displaying symptoms that you should be concerned about. And I think for me as a psychologist, um, 
like I filled these in along with clients so that the clients would feel awkward and then scored higher than the clients. You know, I was like, oh, this is an interesting situation to be in. So I think from that point of view, those questionnaires have been very useful for me for self-awareness because unfortunately, I think in sport, we end up like the boiling frog in that it gets too much and it goes so slowly that we end up boiled in it without realizing we should have jumped out earlier. Um, so that would be an approach that I would take. And I think, you know, there's there's also a reason to maybe ask your friends and family and support to, you know, am I myself? Am I, am I going down a place that I'm not? Because they might give you, you know, a, a read on how you feel and how you actually are in real life that you're not aware of. So that would be how I would look to answer that. I'll remind you of your earlier point, which I think was was a really useful one, which is, you know, uh, are you willing to walk away from it? Um, I think that was a very, very important uh, point to make at the start. Are you willing to walk away from the situation? Will it come back in? You know, Pete um, and me had a conversation earlier in the week about, I, I talk, called it golden handcuffs, but I think, Pete, you called it something else. It was entrapment profile. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, actually, Derek mentioned this earlier on the idea of entrapment, and it's uh, it, it's uh, Tom Radicky, uh did some research in the sort of early two thousands about why coaches or, and athletes as well are committed to their sport, and um, the idea is that people are committed for different reasons. So people are committed either because they're really attracted to their sport and what they're doing. So they perceive that there are really high benefits to to staying in the sport and that there are low costs and that they've invested a significant amount of time in it, but that's okay. Um, and there are people who are entrapped. So um, they're committed because uh, they're kind of stuck in this and it's not just about sport either so they've invested a lot of time in it but there's a lack of alternatives and there are kind of really high uh, costs to being in this uh, sport or, or this job or whatever it is and the the benefits are pretty low um but like i say you've invested a lot of time in it and there's not really much other things that you can do so people are kind of entrapped in this profile so stress is one thing so you kind of experience stress and everybody experiences stress we talked about it earlier on high performance sport is a stressful environment but if you are stressed and committed because you're attracted to the sport that's great that's lovely and wonderful if you're stressed and you're committed because you're trapped in the sport that's something that's slightly different and that's what perhaps is, or, or, or in the literature, has been associated with uh, burnout. I, I think th this is the point where I ask uh, Anna and, uh, and Laurie whether or not they've got any parting gifts. Yeah, something about uh, lions, bees and uh, frogs. <laughs> no gifts. No, no. We've, I think we're, well, I've loved it. Two and a half, really two and a half hours in, two hours in. I, I really need the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I suppose that leaves me to try and try and somehow wrap that cut, up. Yeah, cut that bit and, and wrap up. No, I'm not, I'm not cutting it, it off. No, you've not got, cut you've, it. You've not, no, you've, you've not got your Derek. Please cut this T-shirt on. So 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 no. Um, <laughs> I've loved it. It's been um, incredible and hopefully useful. No, it's been a, it's been a blast. So I, I guess it leaves me just to embarrass a couple of people. First and foremost, Pete uh, and you both. Both of you, thanks very much for for coming on. Um, you've both been incredible sports about about coming on that this podcast. Um, 
uh, and Pete especially, I'm just going to embarrass you a little bit more. And I remember being oh good. Oh, oh, here we go. Yeah, uh, but but I remember just being in a complete fog with trying to get my dissertation over the line for my postgrad, uh, and uh, remember reaching out to you and you've been extremely, extremely generous with your time to support me to make sense of some of the data that I that um, that I was producing and how that might be translated into how I construct uh, my arguments around how coach developers could complement sports sites uh, in supporting early detection and mediation of stress and burnout in high performance coaches. Um, so to thank you for that uh, uh, openly, but also thank you for being so generous with your time as well tonight, along with you. Uh, and equally, Sarah, we met for the first time in January Again, we met for an hour and, and talked deeply about about coach well-being and and your book. Um, and again, thank you, thank you too for being really generous with your time today and getting on the smash uh, at midday uh, in Colorado. Um, but I think, uh, look, despite the fact that we were pretty jovial around the consumption of alcohol within this podcast, and we would never advocate alcohol as a coping mechanism in the area of stress or burnout, I think we did sensitively. Um, uh, navigate our way through some really difficult uh, uh, topics um, uh, in the area of, of coach well-being and I hope that our listeners take something from it. Yeah I need to say something really important it's uh, great being on this podcast it's been wonderful um, I've really enjoyed your company and the preparation for this um, podcast but I just also want to plug um, Sarah's book. Um, I read it and I find it really enjoyable and I think it's worthwhile read for coaches. I think the process of actually sitting down and writing a letter to yourself is probably one of the most therapeutic things you could probably do aside from sitting down with a therapist. So uh, I'd encourage coaches who are listening to actually get on and, and follow Sarah and check out her book. Um, and have a go at uh, writing yourself a letter because um, who knows, you might even read it one day. And I'll just add, Sarah, if you could just jump in and remind us where we, when and where we can get the book. And if anybody does choose to follow Hugh's great suggestion there and write a letter, fire it our way, please, to the podcast. And we could maybe even create a little bespoke episode just discussing anonymously some of those letters that might come in. Could be a useful stimulus. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you so much for, for that plug. Um, so my book is uh, right now will not, especially in the UK, come out until July 28th of 2021. So if you're going to be listening to this before then, then it will not or the physical copy, I should say. So if you're a person that likes to have a physical copy, write in it, highlight in it. Um, it will not come out till July 28, 2021. The ebook is available currently. So if you are uh, have a platform to download ebooks, um, you can go online uh, on major markets, Amazon, wherever that is that you buy, um, to be able to um, order it there. And I would love to come back on and kind of just talk specifics about really kind of that micro stuff, what coaches can do um, based upon what athletes have said they wish they could have told their coach but never did. As far as my social media for people that want to follow me, I have my uh, Twitter and Instagram is at Doc Serdner. So it's D-O-C underscore S-E-R-D-N-E-R. If you are like, you know what, I do not want to follow you and some of these artistic things that you're posting, but I want to follow Dear Coach, you can also follow the Twitter and the Instagram at at underscore dear coach all lowercase um, and find some of the book stuff there
So I, I, I just wanted to create an editing nightmare for Derek and come back to one of the points that we talked about earlier, which was the fact that this is the um, coaching discourse podcast, but it's the 8% minimum. And, you know, we are enjoying a couple of beers. But I, 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 I wanted to raise an important point, and that is that in some of the literature, um, coaches have talked about drinking as a coping strategy. And you know, it's all very well and good for us to say, sit here and say, you know, drinking's bad, blah, blah, blah. But you have to look at the function of that behavior. You have to look at the function of the coping strategies that you are engaging in. And if the function of sitting and having a beer is to socialize with people and chat and talk, then, you know, that that's absolutely fine. If the function of it is to get out of your mind and you know remove yourself from the day that you've had and you know that that's an issue so it's looking at the function of the behavior and as an eight percent minimum podcast i thought that was perhaps a good point to to maybe raise